The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. This is Ken Smith, Certified Financial Planner and CEO of Seattle-based Empirical Wealth Management. My co-host Ethan Broga is here today. Good afternoon, Ethan. Hey, Ken. Ethan is a Certified Financial Planner with a Master's degree in Financial Analysis and the head of our Financial Planning Committee here at Empirical. Ethan, do you want to go ahead and give out our information? And We have Sean uh, sitting here today, too. Um, one of the two you guys be pretty good. Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd happily uh, give out our information. Go ahead. It's no problem at all. Uh, if, if you'd like to reach us during the show today, um, you can reach us here at the uh, live in the studio at 866-472-5790. Um, or if you prefer email, that's fine too. You can reach us at uh, contact at empiradio.com. Give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, then we are continuing our expansion around the country. And so if you are an advisor that is looking to connect with a, a very well-established, ethical, client-focused firm, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, this show is designed to share prudent techniques for investing and financial planning that you can implement into your uh, into your lifetime and, and uh, hopefully help you preserve and maintain the capital you have. Um, the things that we talk about and the approach we t- we tried to take and our namesake empirical is we look for well-thought, well-researched ideas um, rather than reacting on emotion or unproven techniques. So, Nathan, I thought we could start with our uh, weekly update of what's going on in the market and then head into where we left off last week. We were talking about a recent article that was uh, printed in the Seattle Times here that we had some clients and prospects ask about. Uh, which was the Dave Stockman yeah. uh, interview question, questions and answers. I got a question from uh, uh, an investor about Apple announcing they're paying a uh, they plan to pay a, a dividend and also um, repurchase stock. And I thought we could take that, talk about that a little bit, what the implications of that are. Okay, and then uh, go over any other any any other financial planning ideas you've got. If there's enough time and. Uh, you know, see how it goes. I think it sounds good. Okay, cool. Well, uh, let's take a look here. We've got um, the Dow was was down a little bit today. Yep. Um, and for the week, uh, we are from last Thursday show. We're we're down actually uh, about one point five six percent. We were at three thirteen two fifty two last week, and we're at thirteen oh four six at the close. Right. Today's a little bit of a pullback from the recent. Uh, 
raging raging uh, bull market we've been having. Um, S and P five hundred closed at thirteen ninety three, and that uh, is uh, is all is also down about half a percent though from last week, a little less. Right. Um, Nasdaq uh, closed at uh, three thousand sixty three, which is still up from pr- the prior week's close by about two tenths of a percent. And uh, five year Treasury rates one point one two percent. Uh, that uh, yield is up from last week, which was uh, 1.09. 10-year Treasury, uh, pretty much unchanged, 2.28%. Uh, five-year municipals, on average, uh, 1.09. So at a, at a uh, 28% bracket, that's a tax equivalent yield of 1.51%. Um, or a, uh, a spread there then over the uh, Treasury Um you know, a little bit less than 40 basis points. Mm-hmm. Um, five-year uh, AAA corporates, 2.15. 10-year, uh, 4.10. Five-year uh, inflation-protected treasuries, negative yield on that, negative 1.19. And uh, that's uh, a little bit higher than last week's on the five-year, which was negative 1.3. And I think that was higher than the previous week. So, um the break-even inflation rate now is 2.31 on the uh, five-year treasury, hmm. and ten-year uh, treasuries are negative yield of negative uh, 0.11, which again is a little higher than the negative 0.12 of last week. So the the break-even uh, inflation rate is um, 2.39 over the the nominal treasury. Hmm. So that's actually just slightly lower. It was 2.4 was the break-even rate over the the Treasury prime rate unchanged at three point two five, and uh, three month LIBOR unchanged point four seven. One year CD on average point seven. That's pretty much unchanged from last week. Five one ARM on a mortgage two point nine one, which is up from two point eight four last week. Thirty year mortgage at four point zero five, up from four dot zero two last week. Not too bad though. Uh, and gold. Is uh, 1637 versus uh, 1647, so down a little bit from last week. Hmm. Crude oil 123.12, uh, up from 122.55 last week, and uh, gas on average 388 per gallon, up a little bit from 3.82 last week. There you have it on that, Ethan. You have any comments, concerns, or well, the treasury point? treasury yields have come up a little bit, so the prices. Uh must have been falling over the last couple of weeks as the, the stock market continues to rally. So we have five-year Treasury above, uh, well above one percent. You know, we've yeah. seen that well below a percent for quite some time. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Well, let's go to the question, the client uh, investor question that I got, Ethan. How do you feel about that? Mm, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, sounds pretty good. So the question was: um, This investor holds uh, has some shares of Apple. And, uh, you know, we might take the answer to this into two parts. And one part being, let's, let's answer this, the direct question. And the second part, let's talk about the notion of, a, of holding an individual stock like an Apple. Uh, is that a good idea or, or should other things be considered? And so the first part was, um, Apple announced the plans to initiate dividends in a, in a share repurchase program. Um, 
what does the dividend actually look like? Uh, it's supposed to be quarterly, $2.65 per share. Um, this person owns a few hundred, couple hundred shares of this. And uh, overall, we add to that. But if we sell any stock, it's uh, it's still at the market price, question mark. Where do the dividends go? Is it just an addition to our account, at their brokerage account? Um, and so I think what they're trying to get is how will the dividend affect the shares that they hold um, and and the share price? And so okay. I thought we could just answer that because that might be a common question. I think yeah. it's a good question. And uh, my response was that, um, you know, I think a lot of people are a little bit confused about how dividends affect the values of companies. Um, so when a, when a stock pays a dividend, um, they're, if it's, say, it's quarterly that they're going to pay the dividend, there typically trades in, uh, as a date called the ex-dividend date. And if you buy the stock on that date or later, you're not you're not entitled to the dividend at that point. So shareholders who own prior to the X date, there's an X date, record date, but there's a specific date in which you no longer have entitlement to that dividend. So if it was a $10 stock, and let's just say, I mean, it was a, a dollar dividend, just to keep the math very simple, which would be pretty nice yield. Um, the day before that, that X dividend date, the stock might be trading at the $10. The day after it goes X date, it will trade at nine dollars, and the and the the the, uh, the prior um, holder will be entitled to the dividend. So now they're holding. Let's say you held the stock the entire time. Say so yeah, I bought the stock in January, and it's going to pay its first dividend April first, for example. All right. Um, and more importantly, is that ex dividend date the date the stock actually trades without entitlement to the dividend? If that were to occur, you bought it at ten dollars, and let's say that it just it didn't increase in any in value, so the share price was just constant the whole period of time. If uh, you received your one dollar dividend on April first because you've continued to hold it, or let's say the pay date was April third, for example, but on April first, right, the, you you still held the stock. The stock's now trading at nine dollars a share because it, the market says, hey. A dollar is no longer going to be in the company. It's being distributed to all the shareholders who held the, the, the company on this particular date or, or earlier. Right. Um, so what you have on April 3rd, though, is a stock, in essence, all things being equal here, that is now trading at $9 a share, and you have $1 of cash. And so now let's talk about, well, where does that cash go? Okay. Uh, and what happens if you choose to or not to reinvest that dividend? So most brokerage companies allow you to set on on in your settings for each bit when you're buying a stock typically you can decide do I want to have the dividend reinvested or do I want to have it paid as cash um, you can adjust that at any time if not online call them and say hey can I go through or I want to go through all the stocks that I own I want to find out if I'm same thing with mutual funds I want to find out if I have the, the dividend set to be reinvested mm-hmm. So if you do do that, this is an important thing. If you if you don't reinvest it and you receive it in cash, you'll have the dollar times however many shares you had. Say it was a hundred, you'd have a hundred dollars sitting in cash in your brokerage account. Maybe it's in the money market, whatever is in there. Uh, and now you have nine hundred dollars worth of of Apple stock. In this case, if Apple was trading at a, a ten dollars, it's not. Um, so if you do, if you don't reinvest, you in theory. 
would dilute, begin to dilute your, per, your percentage of ownership, assuming that other people do reinvest their dividends. So if you instruct the brokerage firm, hey, when I get a dividend, I don't need the cash. I just really want to be in the same position um, and build my position of, of Apple stock, for example. Uh, relative to other investors who are who are reinvesting, then you would stay in proportion. Your proportionate ownership would remain the same. If everybody received their dividend, their dividend checks, and uh, just took them as cash, then yeah, you'd be the same. But if other people are reinvesting, then relative to them, you would have a smaller and smaller percentage. Right. I think this is our uh, music for the break here. So uh, we'll come back, finish the answer to this, and talk about uh, the Apple dividend and. Move on from there. Sounds good. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Welcome back to the show. Uh, just wanted to remind all of our listeners that this is a live show, and please feel free to give us a call at 
866-472-5790. You can also shoot us an email at contact at empiradio.com. Thanks. All right, this is Ken. And uh, going into the break, we were talking about a question about Apple releasing uh, news that they're going to start paying a dividend and also there's a going to be a re- uh, plan to repurchase stock. And we were talking about the uh, nature of the dividend. And it does seem over the years that we've been doing this as advisors, there's a lot of con- people who are frequently confused about the, the effect of the dividend. Yeah, there's were, definitely some misconceptions about it. Yeah, that. you were bringing up when Microsoft announced that they were going to pay a dividend, how investors thought, hey, I'll scoop up some shares. I want to get shares of Microsoft right. uh, before they pay the dividend so I can get included on that as if it's some sort of, a, as you refer to as a free lunch. Right. And um, that's not the case. In, in reality, the uh, company price should re- fully reflect the uh, when the dividend is going to be paid. And as we were giving the example going into the break, if you had a $10 stock, it's going to pay a dollar dividend on the day that it trades X the dividend where you can't, you're no longer, uh, if you didn't hold it on that date or prior, you're no longer entitled to receive it. Right. Um, the, the person who's held it the entire time winds up with a $9 stock at the opening and a dollar's worth of, of dividend in their, in their portfolio. And so, um, they're in the same economic position. Now, the dividend being paid is a taxable event in a taxable account. Yep. So even at preferential tax treatment, uh, there's been some special treatment for the last several years on qualified, what's called a qualified dividend. Right. It still is a taxable event. And so all things being considered, um, if you had a preference, a lot of us would like to time when they're going to pay tax. And if you if it remained as a... Uh, it, in this particular case, you you bought the stock um, for for ten dollars, right? As we said, you still have ten dollars worth of value, but now you have a tax liability on a dollar. Exactly. And you have to wait until you sell the stock, then, because now the basis on the stock is is is, is still going to be uh, the ten you paid, but now it's trading at nine. So theoretically, you've got a dollar loss, but you'd have to sell the stock to realize the loss. To offset, so it's not necessarily a great thing. Um, it's just the reality of, of holding a stock. Now, another thing, I, I think we've clarified that there's no free lunch in, in trading around a dividend in order to make money by buying it right before it pays its dividend. Yeah, and I, I think the market itself, the, the, the volatility of the market, the price movements that happen literally every minute of every day or, or more frequently, uh, give the illusion that there may be some free lunch going on there. But if you could somehow filter out the market noise, the market movements, and yeah. only, only see the effect of the dividend, what we're describing is exactly what you'd see. Yeah, it is very confusing because if they're outside of any dividend, you know, it, when you're dealing with an individual stock within a particular quarter or even a day, I mean, yeah. in a particular day, a stock can be up or down five or ten percent sometimes. Sure. Um, particularly over a course of a whole quarter, it can be it can move twenty or thirty percent, right? Easily. So it is harder to really identify what's going on as a result of the dividend, which tends to be a smaller percentage. You know, if we look at the average dividend yield on the S and P right now, um, maybe it's between it's around two percent, two percent, right? So it's it's typically a very small portion of the daily volatility, you know, within a particular stock, and I think people just that makes it harder for them to understand that what's really going on there. Yeah, because you don't. It's not easy to see. Yeah, exactly right. 
And so my viewpoint about not whether you decide to reinvest, what happens to the dividend? So, hey, I owned I own a couple hundred shares of Apple. Now I get this dividend. Um, if you start reinvesting it, you'll be acquiring shares. But in theory, you'll really just be holding kind of holding your position there, right? So in my example, if the company and all its value, including the cash, was worth $10, and then it pays out the dividend, it hands you the cash, and then you turn around and hand it back by, by buying more stock, you still have $10 worth of value there. Right. Um, relative to those who took cash, though, you're, you're, you are increasing your proportionate share, or they are decreasing their proportionate share. So that's the, the dividend component. Why, though, this is something I think it is worth um, mentioning, though it wasn't in the question, which is, is a company, do my, do my viewpoint of the company, should it change because they've decided to pay a dividend? Is it a better co- prospect, a worse prospect, an equal prospect? Um, and in reality, the research shows, because we've talked about this with the dividend strategies, right, that there really should be... Uh, not a, a large difference in terms of risk. Does Apple still face risk? Are they a less risky company because they pay the dividend than they were before they paid the dividend? Um, and do they have a higher or lower expected return because they've decided to make the make a dividend payment? In reality, what they should be, what they what companies tend to do is say, "Hey, we've got so much; ca- they're a little flush with cash right now." Yeah. And we can go out into the market and we can pursue only so many opportunities, so many investments that we can manage to generate uh, and the cost of capital. And the cost of capital is any of the debt they hold, what the price and the rate they pay on that debt, or what the expected re- return or required return is on the stock, right? And sometimes it's a better investment to the shareholders to return some of the cash, give some of those retained earnings distributed out as cash, because then the investors can go out and put that to use any way they want. Maybe they can find other opportunities that, that with that cash. If, or they can reinvest it, like we said, back into the company. Um, it's not, it's not necessarily a sign that the company will do, will do worse or better. Um, it's just a function of, hey, we had cash and now we're distributing it. So I think there's some confusion around Hey, well, now it's a conservative company and the illusion that it's a safer company when a company decides to pay dividends. And that's not necessarily the case. There's been plenty, and we've outlined this before. Sure. Plenty of companies or even groups, if you look at the, uh, we were talking about the index, the aristocrats, um, which is a kind of a high dividend input. If you track those dividend uh, paying indexes or funds that just focused on through the financial crisis, you'll see that those, those went down equal, equally as much as a general stock market index did. Yes, exactly. And several dividend company, I, dividend paying companies have gone bankrupt. Enron was a dividend paying company. Um, Washington Mutual Washington was Mutual. a dividend paying company. Exactly. And we could go right down the list. So it, I don't want our listeners to be fooled when they're buying companies that pay dividends or someone going, well, now that Apple's paying a dividend, I'll buy them. Um, when I didn't, wasn't interested, even though they have grown to be the largest you know, one of the very largest positions in the U.S. stock market and in the in the, in the world. Right. Um, you missed out on all that growth if you didn't buy or own them because it was a uh, <clears throat> non-dividend paying stock. The share repurchase, real quick, can we talk about that? I think we should. Okay. So a lot of times companies will say, "Hey, 
another great investment because we're flush with cash. Um, as companies go from very small, and a lot of times they authorize more stock than they actually publicly issue. So over time, they they issue more stock. And one of the ways they do that is through grants. So say they want to give uh, employees stock grants and um, or stock purchase programs where the employees can buy, employee stock purchase programs where they can buy that in many cases a uh, the stock at a discounted um, price. A lot of times, the company takes that out of their the shares that they've authorized, but haven't were now trading in the public market. When they do that, it actually dilutes the pre-existing shareholders' value. Because if we had, if we said the company's worth a hundred dollars and we had ten shares outstanding, it's ten bucks of value per share. But if we take that same value, if we said, hey, the company's still worth 100 but now we're going to issue an additional 100 shares and sell them to somebody else, right? Well, now we've got 200 claims on the same amount of assets. So instead of, uh, you know, the, I'm sorry, instead of 10, we, go to, we issue another 10, and now there's 20 shares out there. So instead of $10, you wind up saying, well, now each share theoretically is worth $5. Right. Why does that not, even though companies are issuing shares a lot, you don't see it, again, because they tend to do it while the company is growing. So if it was growing and all of a sudden it was worth, instead of $100, it was worth $200, and you issued another 100 shares, right, you'd have about the same share price. Now, if I did that in such a way where I was issuing less shares than the growth, you'd still see the stock price going up, even though I'm issuing and diluting the shares. And maybe there's re- good reasons to issue shares. You mean you need more capital as you're growing. Um, and your equity is one form of raising capital, right? But I don't think a lot of people really understand what's going on in that. And so there comes a point when a company has grown, and Apple's grown to be pretty large, no and they've issued a lot of shares, where they say, hey, another great investment would be to reduce the dilution if we wanted to add value for our shareholders. We'll take some of this cash and we'll buy back some of the shares outstanding. And the statement that Apple gave is saying, they're not saying they're really going to reduce it because... They're just going to neutralize the amounts that they're already giving away. You mean in terms? Oh, you mean in terms of the dividend, or do you mean in terms of the repurchase? We're talking about the stock repurchase program that they're going to take some of that large sum of cash and begin repurchasing Apple stock with it. Is that to offset, or is it not not affecting at all the dilution of shares by reinvestment of dividends? It's that's not the not the stated purpose. So they're saying, hey, we've authorized ten billion dollars of share repurchase. Um, commencing and doesn't start to looks like their fiscal 2013, which would begin September 30th of this year. The repurchase program is expected to be executed over three years with the primary objective of neutralizing the impact of dilution from future employee equity grants oh. and employee stock purchase programs. Okay. So, oh, I guess we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Empirical Investing Radio. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network we spend 70 percent of our week in the office what is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it the number one motivator is a positive work environment and that's where real recognition radio comes in 
Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor, or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Welcome back. I just wanted to remind our listeners that this is a live show and we'd be happy to take a call from you or answer any questions you might have. You can reach us at 866-472-5790 or by email at empiradio.com or contact at empiradio.com. Thanks, Sean. And if you do want to get a hold of us uh, here at the firm to talk about your own personal financial situation, um, we'd love to help you build a, a retirement plan and, and build an investment strategy uh, that's designed to get you through the duration of your lifetime and beyond that and through your legacy plans. So we'd love to help you um, do that. And you can reach us at the firm at 1-800-923-4307. Or you can email me directly, Ken Smith at ksmith at empiricalfs.com. Thank you very much. Ethan, we were uh, going to talk a little bit about last week when you were on a luxurious Disneyland vacation. Uh, how did that go, by the way? Pretty good? Well, yeah, it was um, a lot of fun in spite of the the weather was not cooperating. It was pretty uh, windy and rainy and stormy. Yeah. Did Friday, you have to wear a jacket? Or? I actually had to buy a poncho. A poncho? So I went around with me and the kids and my wife around Disneyland. So oh, you're very sensitive. The ponchos in Disneyland aren't cheap, by the way. They're... They're about 50 bucks for four of them. 
Wow. <laughs> but it was better than the alternative because you didn't come prepared for uh, rainy conditions. Yeah. It was almost a monsoon for the first six hours of Saturday. But uh, Wow. I had no idea. Any ride outages? Not to my knowledge. But uh, in spite of that, we had a good time. Good. Well, we were... We last week we talked about the Goldman Sachs letter by Greg Smith, right? And uh, we were talking about a little bit about the institution of that, and we were just going to get into um, an article that appeared appeared in the. Uh, uh, actually, I'm reading it out of USA Today. Yeah, it was, a na- it was published nationally. Uh, we saw it locally here in the Seattle Times as well. Okay, um, where they were doing a Q and A with uh, David Stockman, who was the. Uh, Former White House Budget Director under Ronald Reagan, um, who after resigning in protest over deficit spending, made a fortune in corporate buyouts. Now he's writing a book, and I, I don't know if that is part of his why he's on the media circuit or how this popped up. But I know we had a couple of questions from our clients about it, and um, I, you know his his view was that there's an economic disaster in the works, and without rereading the whole thing. Um, basically, some of the, the hot points were that he's not in bonds, but he's also not in stocks. He's recommending, I think, the I will get that quote of something to the effect that the stock market's not safe for man, woman, or child. Um, and he was saying, no, I, I wouldn't touch the stock, quote, I wouldn't touch the stock market with a 100-foot pole. <laughs> it's a dangerous place. It's not safe for men, women, or children. Yeah, he also makes the comment in the article uh in his judgment, anybody would be a big fool to hold anything but cash and maybe a few bars of gold. That's what he I guess a few bars of gold, right? Yeah. So I wanted to comment on that. I want to talk, and I want to get your feedback, Ethan. Sure. Um, when you read an article like this, as we've talked about the role of the financial media and gurus out there in in making individual personal financial investing decisions and how should a person, when they read an article like this, react? And what things might be worth if I'm trying to make the most prudent decisions in my life? What things would I want to consider um, when I think about taking this kind of information in and, and, and reacting to it? Do you want to throw some stuff out? Sure, I could talk about it a little bit. Um, well, first of all, when you read this particular article, it is it definitely is, is, is unsettling. I mean, the comments and the severity in which he's talking about the situations implies some um, there's a lot of greater things going on than we're, we're perceiving right now at least in the marketplace and it is it is disconcerting for everybody I mean even me reading this article makes me feel uneasy for sure um, but in terms of how that translates in making investment decisions um, obviously it's easy to follow the advice just about go to cash and buy some gold uh, but will that be the, turn out to be the right thing to do and I don't I don't know. I mean, the answer is I honestly don't know. But the truth is nobody really knows the answer to that question. And I think for investors, the the real risk for you as an investor comes on the extremes. So if you take an extreme position and buy only cash, well, I know the outcome with cash as well. I'm sure you'll lose buying power over time. I have no doubt about that because of inflation. That is a certainty, right? Or if you have all stocks as an alternative um, on the opposite spectrum, you also have a lot of risk there, too. They can go down, as we've seen here recently with the, the, the financial crisis a couple of years ago and that we're still emerging from. So in my view, I think it really is a situation where you still have to make decisions based on understanding you don't know all, you don't have all the information to make the best decisions. 
Therefore, you should diversify and own. That doesn't mean just own a couple of different stocks. That owns. It means owning cash, owning bonds, owning stocks. That's appropriate for your your time horizon, risk tolerance, and and those sort of things. That's how I would answer that question. Yeah, and I and I would add, if I may, I think you should. You would need to start with this person who are making these statements. They may have some other agenda. Uh, that agenda may not be that I'm making the smartest financial decisions for my specific needs, goals, risk tolerance, and financial situation over the next whatever my exact time horizon is. So they're making generic statements, but they don't know me specifically. They didn't sit down and assess me as an investor. And am I willing to take market risk? And is the risk that he's referring to an ever-present risk, or is it some once-in-a-lifetime type of risk? Um, there's always the risk that the market is overvalued relative to someone's filter or someone's interpretation, right? So in the article, it goes on, the question, the person asking the questions even said, well, it looks like based on historical P ratios that we're pretty reasonably valued, uh, not overvalued relative to previous market peaks, right? When we're trading in 30 or 40 times earnings, um, on, 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 on the S&P or whatever the index was, right. 29 times, uh, the trailing 12 month or whatever it was. And, and so it, a lot of these things, um, are functions of what will happen in the future. You know, what will happen? He even admits, hey, if we could get on track, if we stop, reduce the amount of debt to GDP growth, for example. Um, and his view is, hey, it's going to take us a while to do that. We're going to have to eat the broccoli or, or whatever the vegetable is that he, talks about right. to do it um is he is he trying to make a bigger economic point you know he's clearly if you read through this and you ask you you find out about why he wrote this book right and the book was hey i was so angry about the bailouts uh and the and the whole financial crisis and how that went down and the policies clearly he's trying to attract attention so that people will want to read the book he has an, his own agenda, which is selling this book. Would he, would he, how many, is this a, uh, in my view, this is a very ingenious way of getting attention because anyone who says, hey, the market is, we are, we are on the, on the doorstep here of a market crisis, unlike, unlike anything we've ever seen in history, it's very easy to get, if you've had any kind of notoriety previously, to get reporters and get on any show you want. When you have that kind of, if you got on and say, hey, I think everyone should just do what Ken and Ethan say, build globally diversified, primarily passively managed, using primary passively managed strategies um, that own literally thousands of securities all around the world. You combine those in a way that matches with your risk tolerance, your need, willing, your need, ability, and willingness to take risk. And you let these guys rebalance it consistently and adjust it as time frame shorten and as things change. How many people are going to even interview the person? You know, do you think he would wind up in in a in a national if that was his advice? Right, and how many not. books would he sell yeah. about the financial crisis? Sure. So there's a little bit about the media. You have to understand. Hey, there's a motivation here. It's to get attention. It's to make very dramatic statements to get you off center, to get you emotional enough to say, "Hey, geez, I might want to buy this book. I might. I want to find out what this guy's talking about." Um, now, everything he said is not a big market secret. Everyone can now take the data, even if we didn't know it before. So 
imagine if we went back to the financial crisis and people were publishing in national newspapers, hey, look, here's I've torn apart these this mortgage debt, and here's what every now it was very hard to figure out what was going on because of all the different um, levels of uh, of the uh, the uh, option not the options but the uh, Credit default swaps. Yeah, the swaps and right. the very complicated derivatives is the word I was use, I was right. looking for. Uh-huh. But this is a pretty straightforward thing he's talking about. It's a very function of hey, for the last hundred years we've had a, a, a debt to a GDP ratio that's been in this range, and we began to get out of that leading into the crisis. Now I didn't see anything in here about him predicting the financial crisis or, or publishing anything that was out. Maybe he did. They're just not talking about it here, and I didn't get a chance to research that. Right, I didn't either. Right? Did he, if he was so smart now, he's very, very smart about all this, but did he know? In advance, right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But clearly there's an agenda here. It's not as if he's came out and said, I don't have any books. I don't have anything I'm trying to push. I'm just making these statements because I want to protect investors. Um, And for me, this is, you have to kind of come back to what is it, where am I seeing this? Does everyone else now know that data? And if so, why hasn't the, mar- the market reacted to the degree that, that it would under his scenario, right? Which is, hey, it's not safe for man, woman, or child. Well, that may be true, but we think that's true if for anyone who doesn't have the time horizon or even the financial capacity to be invested. That's correct. Right? But right. if I said, hey, I'm investing for 100 years... And not only that, I'm only going to put 20% of my portfolio in stocks for that 100-year period. I don't know that that it would be appropriate to make a blanket statement that, hey, you shouldn't have any stock. Um, Yeah, I agree. And, oh, looks like we got to take a quick break. But time has proven that to be true. We'll take a quick break and come in and wrap up. And uh, I had a few more points about this that I wanted to cover. Excellent. Thanks. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at empiricalfs.com. Some great ideas arise on their own. Others need a little help getting off the ground. That's where BB&T comes in. From supporting local schools and the arts to helping small businesses or just lending a hand, we provide the lift our communities need to grow. And with a good start in the right direction, there's no limit to where we can go. Banking, insurance, investments, BB&T. Best bank in town since 1872. Member FDIC. Only deposit products are FDIC insured. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio. And once again, if you want to call in during the show, you can reach us at 866-472-5790 or shoot us an email, contact at empiradio.com. While we were on the break, uh, Sean Zuber, one of our crack uh, advisors here, was looking up a little background information on uh, David Stockman. And there's a New York Times article from 2010, actually, I thought might uh, read and then continue our discussion about taking advice from things that appear in, in general national uh, publications or news media. Ethan, what we're talking about. Yep, How to sense. assess that when you're making personal decisions. But I think this is interesting. And thanks for, for looking it up, Sean. Yeah, sure. You better believe it. The Securities and Exchange Commission said it would reach a tentative settlement of a civil lawsuit against David A. Stockman, a former former budget director in the Reagan administration. The agency said in the suit that he and other executives of the bankrupt auto parts maker, Collins and Aikman of Southfield, Michigan, had misled investors. But federal prosecutors in January 2009 dismissed criminal fraud charges against Stockman and other executives of the company. Stockman became chairman and chief of Collins and Aikman in 2002 after the private equity fund he founded, Heartland Industrial Partners, became its majority investor. He said he lost $13 million in the collapse of Collins and Aikman, which filed for bankruptcy in 2005 and was liquidated in 2007. He was accused of defrauding investors and banks of more than $1 billion. The case was dismissed after a lawyer for Mr. Stockman argued his innocence. Terms of the tentative settlement were not disclosed. The SEC suit also names Collins and Aikman's as a defendant. The SEC said it did not reach a settlement with David Cosgrove, a former controller. So we'll have to find out what if there was a uh, ultimate settlement that went through on that. Um, but it's just... it. it Kind of interesting. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Kind of ties into what you were talking about last week a little bit. Yeah. So what we were saying, Ethan, um, and just a couple more points in our last segment here about, you know, we, we see this a lot where investors see articles in the news, whether it's through websites, you know, um, other publications, where someone who's had any kind of notoriety makes a very, uh, uh, you know, a very serious uh, prediction about the markets or investing, mm-hmm. um, and and the tendency is to want to react to these. And my advice to you is is to talk to your advisor who knows your personal situation, who actually has spent, in our case, for example, an entire um, lifetime training. And studying on on how investment markets work and how to relate that to a financial plan, um, not making money in other areas of the market. I think that's something just on the side note, Ethan, because you can you can be the treasure uh, the uh, you can be involved in finance, but that doesn't make you a good financial advisor. You know what I'm saying? The right. fact that you were the former uh, I forgot what he was the White House. Uh, 
Yeah, economic sure. advisor. That looked like under uh, Ronald Reagan, right? Budget director. Yeah. That's what it was. Does not make you a financial planner of any kind. Maybe he's smart enough, but that's not what he's been doing. Right. And so, um, yeah, I, it, it kind of baffles me sometimes because people do tend to, they'll take someone's advice who's had no training in, in developing personal investment and financial planning strategies um, and no direct training in, in running any money for that matter. Um, but, but they're, but they're less likely to, or inclined to rely on their financial advisor or get a financial advisor for that matter. They would take advice, free advice, because I guess it's free out of a newspaper article or off of a website. Again, particularly if it meets their view of the world that, you know, if you, if you tend to be more negative or pessimistic and you see an article like this, it just really scratches you where you're already itching, right? <laughs> exactly. And says, aha, I knew it. I was right. right. I found somebody that, that believes the same way that I do. And now I feel better about following the herd out of the market or whatever it is you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but my view is, well, is th- the other point I wanted to bring up is when will he publish an ar- article? When will it p- appear in the national uh, media when he says, I'm now buying a well diversified, low-cost, tax-efficient portfolio of stocks and bonds that I'm that I'm going to hold for the right until the next crisis. When when will that article appear? Right, right. It will never appear. No, it won't. So if tomorrow or the day after this article, for some reason he met, he changed his mind, or you know, all of a sudden we got out of debt next year for whatever some random event happened, and we won, the country won the lottery. When when is that article going to appear? It's not going to appear. And so following articles that get put out by without any follow-up or any possible way of understanding when the advice will change is also a huge flaw in that strategy. Right. And it goes both ways, right? I mean, if there are um, very positive articles out there about current investments and Maybe a list of, yeah, maybe this guy owns Apple stock or something. That's all my portfolio consists of. That doesn't make that a good thing to do either. It isn't just don't follow the bad news. It's all, hey, don't follow the good news either. You shouldn't be looking at the news in terms of making investment choices. Right. Yeah, the news should should not be, um, there's no there's no succinct um, progress being made by following news article after news article. No. And in fact, uh, we've had, worked with some professionals opposite, who right. have spent some time cataloging different articles throughout history. And uh, it's been quite interesting if you look at some of the major news headlines or magazine head uh, cover pages, um, how incredibly wrong those, those articles have, have gotten it, you know, and, um, but they grab, they grab a lot of attention. Yep. And they definitely do what they're intended to do, which was to get you to read them. To get you to, because they're, they need something that's exciting. They're yeah. selling advertising, and that advertising is based on eyes on that, on that, on that article, on that publication. Right. It reminds me of, uh, in the, around the year 2000 or so, there was a book that came out by a fellow named Harry Dent. Uh, you may have heard of it, Ken and Sean, called The Roaring 2000s. Um, the subtitle is Building a Wealth and a Lifestyle You Desire in the Greatest Boom in History. So this is coming out around 1999, just after the big tech bubble, right? Or just during the peak of, of the tech bubble. Uh, the quote from the flap of the book always gets me. It makes me laugh. 
Um, here's a quote from the inside the book. It says, uh, the Dow will reach at least 21,500 and possibly 35,000 by the year 2008. How much should Dent say? Yeah, 35,000. The Dow should be at 35,000 by 2008 was his prediction. Okay. And, well, we obviously know that didn't happen, right? Not anywhere close to that. Um, even at the peak of the market, we're at 14,500. But my point is, it's just, it's just, some of these things can be very ridiculous. And the more sensational they are, right, the more likely they are to get headlines, get people reading the articles, whether it be on the positive or the negative side. So it just kind of makes me Stocks think of that. the quarter on a high. Sorry about that. No, I, I like it. Well, I was, while you were talking about that, I was looking up at Harry Dent because he had a, uh, there's an article here. Harry Dent, major crash coming for stocks, commodities already topped out. Uh, it was of, uh, it was last year. Um, he says that the Dow, he, he was projecting, forecasting the Dow could trade as low as 3300 um, in a worst case scenario. This guy's all over the board, right? I mean, in 2008, he's thinking 35,000. Now that we've gone through a crash, it's 33,000. Well, 33, it's kind of weird because he's the guy that was saying it was going to go to how, how much? Once again, 35,000 by the year 2008. Yeah. So he was the, the extreme optimist. Mega right? bull, mega bull. He was the one saying it's going through the roof. And now he's the, he was the one last year saying it was going to go down to 30, could go down to 3,300. Right. Um, because we're in a huge bubble. All right. We, it's, it appears that whatever happened recently, Harry Dent's writing a book about it and calling it, hey, it's going to be better or worse in the future. It's going to be worse. Yeah, where yeah. At, at the end of 1999, hey, things are going to get better even from here, right? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's no way to – his track record isn't particularly good, and likely Stockman's is similar is my guess. If you uh, just quickly look at the four books that came out, 99 was the Roaring 2000s, 2006, the, the Next Great Bubble Boom, 2009, the Great Depression Ahead. <laughs> And then in 2011, the great crash ahead. It seems to, to follow quite well with the, with the current times. What's recently just happened is what's going to happen, but even worse in the near future. Meanwhile, over the entire time period from 1999 to now, the global, the global balanced portfolios that we've run have done phenomenally well at staying ahead of inflation oh, yeah. and outperforming a, a, an all-bond or all-cash portfolio. Yeah, or all S and P. Without so so, if you didn't get caught up in all the hype of the upswing and then the down, and then you, you would have done very very well in a very difficult um, decade. Yeah, relative to that, to what's gone on. Exactly. Um, imagine you know if you if we have another good decade at some point here. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you definitely don't want to to miss out on that. And coming back to the original discussion about owning Apple shares, when people are asking about should I buy this stock or that. It's always been our advice that no, you shouldn't. You should be owning those positions in a very well diversified portfolio that owns literally thousands of stocks. Right. You'll get the, the, the Apple. You'll get those other positions, but you also won't get crushed when a particular segment of the market, like during the financial crisis, right? If all I owned was a couple of bank stocks, I would have gotten hurt a lot, lot worse than the global decline that we experienced. Exactly. I think that's it for today's program. We're, we're getting the, the music here, Ethan. So thanks again for tuning in Empirical Investing Radio, and we'll, we'll see you next week.
We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. 